So my name is Graham. I am the ministry intern here at Aspen Grove. A little bit about myself. I'm originally from Maine, where it's much colder than it is here, so I'm glad I'm in Tennessee. I came to Tennessee because in high school I had the calling to go into ministry, and I went to Johnson Bible College, which is now Johnson University. I got my bachelor's degree in preaching and church leadership there, and now I came over here and I'm working on my master's in divinity at Lipscomb, and I am simultaneously with you all being your ministry intern. So it's been, it's been really great getting to know a lot of you here. Um, one thing about myself, I didn't always want to be in the ministry. Actually, for a while, I wanted to be a professional baseball player. But it turns out in baseball, you actually have to practice to be good, right? It's a sport of fundamentals. So I went and tried out for Little League, and I couldn't throw in a straight line. In fact, I was so scared of the ball when I went up to bat that I whiffed every time, and I, I didn't make the team. It was sad. My dreams were crushed. But the reason I wanted to be a professional baseball player is because I got to watch history happen in 2004. When I was 10 years old, I got to watch the Boston Red Sox break the curse of the Great Bambino. Raise your hand if you know who the Great Bambino is. If not, you need to watch Sandlot immediately after church. So the Great Bambino is Babe Ruth, one of the most famous baseball players to ever live. And in 1920, the Red Sox sold Babe Ruth over to the New York Yankees. And before this, their premier team, the Red Sox, they won five World Series titles. And after they sold Babe Ruth over to the New York Yankees, they had not won a World Series for 86 years. <laughs> 86 years. They had a lot of close calls, but they usually came up short, especially to the New York Yankees. So in 2004, here we go again, we're in the American League Championships. I'm 10 years old, and who are we playing? The New York Yankees. So it's going like every other series before this. The Red Sox are down 0-3, to and no team in baseball history has ever won a series being down a 0-3 deficit. So the Red Sox, they, they win their first game, and people are like, ah, oh, it's probably a fluke, oh, no big deal. Then they win their second game, and, you know, people start to perk up a little bit. And then they win their third game, and now the series is tied 3-3, and the slogan, Believe, is all over Boston Red Sox Nation. The slogan, Believe. But they have to play the Yankees in the Bronx, Game 7, Yankees Stadium. So here we go. And the Red Sox just completely swamped the Yankees 10 to 3. And I remember turning on the news and just watching people dancing in the streets. People are going crazy. People are climbing up on telephone poles, and old men are crying in front of their families. They're saying they can finally die. And I, I wanted to be a professional baseball player because receiving after longing is such a beautiful thing, right? So as we're looking at Israel today in our text, the Israelites are in a period of longing. The Jews are kind of in their own curse of them, themselves. They have captivity, a history of captivity, right? First starting with the Egyptians, they're slaves to the Egyptians. 
Then the Assyrians take over the northern kingdom of Israel, scatter the 12 tribes. Then they come, the Babylonians come and take over the southern kingdom. They take over Jerusalem. Then the Persians take over. Then they're fighting with the Greeks. And now, here we are in Roman captivity. And today we're going to look at two people's responses to longing for the Messiah. We're going to look at their responses to seeing Jesus for the first time. So we're opening up our text today, and Mary and Joe, they're going on a road trip to Jerusalem, to the temple. And it's a custom for a woman, after she has a baby, to go get ceremonially cleansed. So she's going to the temple, and Jesus needs to be dedicated and circumcised. And if you don't know what circumcision is, just ask Adam. He'd love to tell you. And uh, so they're heading, and this is, this is not a quick trip to Kroger, right? This is a 90-mile walk to Jerusalem from Nazareth. Nazareth is all the way in the north. And this is going to take about five days. But to put it in perspective, this would probably only take us a little under two hours in a car today. And as they're traveling, I bet you they could have never expected the response that they were going to get when they got to the temple. So let's look at verse 25. We're opening up in verse 25 in Luke 2. It says, At that time, there was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon. He was righteous and devout and was eagerly waiting for the Messiah to come and rescue Israel. The Holy Spirit was upon him and had had revealed to him that he would not die until he had seen the Lord's Messiah. That day, the Spirit led him to the temple. So when Mary and Joseph came to present the baby Jesus to the Lord, as the law required, Simeon was there. And he took the child in his arms and praised God. So let's stop here and look at this scene real quick. Here is this complete stranger, Simeon, and he's raising up Mary and Joseph's baby like Simba in front of everyone, right? In front of the whole temple. He's raising up this baby. It seems like he skips all the formalities of baby holding. And I'm sure at this point, Mary and Joseph are kind of holding their breath to see what's going to happen. But the next question I have is, who is this guy? Who is Simeon? Simeon is what I like to call a one-hit wonder in Scripture. So we never really see anything about Simeon before this text or after this text. This is Simeon's spotlight. And man, he shines well. So one thing we do know about Simeon is that Simeon's name means listening and obedient. And personally, I think we should probably name more kids today Simeon, right? Listening and obedient. (laughs) That's a great name for a child. But it's so fitting for this text, right? Because Simeon is in communion with the Holy Spirit. He's listening and responding to the Holy Spirit. I mean, I'm kind of a socially conscious person. You know, I, I usually don't like to make a big scene. I'm kind of a mellow guy, really. And uh, when I see Simeon lifting up this baby in the temple, I'm just thinking, man, that's got to be a little awkward. He's kind of stirring things up. But when I look at Simeon, His actions just seem, they seem so organic, right? He just looks genuinely filled with the Holy Spirit and with joy, so much so that he's raising up 
this baby in public. And this is kind of from my personal experience, what I've seen, is that people who are in step with the Spirit, they usually don't think twice about doing, doing things standing out, right? Sometimes these people are kind of scary to be around because they don't think twice before putting their arm around someone and saying a prayer for them. They're the type of people who, they say, wait, let's turn back. I saw that homeless guy, and he looks, he looks like he's in rough shape. Let's give him a sandwich. These are usually the type of people who, who they'll give you encouragement for no reason, or usually they're the type of people who usually speak boldly about Christ. So here is Simeon, filled with the Holy Spirit, and he's raising up this baby in front of everyone in the temple. He's been longing for this child. And here's what he says. Let's look at verse 29. He says, Sovereign Lord, now let your servant die in peace. He's seen the curse lifted. He can die. As you have promised, I have seen your salvation, which you have prepared for all people. He is the light to reveal God to all the nations, and he is the glory of your people, Israel. I mean, can you just sense the joy in Simeon's words here? This is the Messiah that he's been longing for. This is the Messiah who people have come and gone, lived and died, waiting to see. And now he's holding this child in his arms. The Messiah who's going to break the curse. The one who's going to save everyone, not just the Jews. But then... I picture all of a sudden the scene gets a little bit more ominous and as if like some dark clouds come into the temple. And I picture Simeon's face gets really stern all of a sudden. And he looks straight at Mary in the text. And here's what he says. He says, This child is destined to cause many in Israel to fall and many others to rise. He has been sent as a sign from God, but many will oppose him. And as a result, the deepest thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your very soul. Wow. So that kind of just got intense. First, it's this beautiful declaration, really smiling, happy, and then it gets a bit more serious. Simeon is essentially saying that this Messiah is going to shake things up, that this is not going to be a Messiah in people's comfort zones. And I think this is the reason why Luke puts Simeon's prophecy in his gospel. No other gospel writer puts Simeon's prophecy in their gospel. And Luke has been commonly referred to the social justice gospel because Luke is constantly saying how Jesus is going to shake up the Roman Empire, the Jewish system as we know it, and even the social structures as we know it in the day. So even phrases in Luke when he says, Jesus is Lord, in the Greek, Yesu hakurios, would be in direct opposition to what the Romans would say when they said Caesar is Lord, Caesar hakurios. He is going in direct opposition to the structures of the day. So when Christians would read something like Simeon's prophecy in light of Luke's theme here, they would say things like, yeah, Caesar and Herod, your kings, they're born in comfy palaces, but our king, Christ, he's born in a manger with us. Your king, Caesar, Herod, they love to oppress people. 
But our king, Christ, he takes on our oppressions. He is with the oppressed. Your king, Caesar, your king, Herod, he enslaves. But Christ sets the captives free. Your king, Caesar, he conceals his heart because he knows it's corrupt. But our king, Christ, reveals the hearts of men. Your king, Caesar, he puts the sword to the flesh. But our king, Christ, his tongue is a sword, and it pierces the very soul of men. See, Simeon's prophecy is pretty radical. He says he's going to lift the curse, but it's not going to be in everyone's comfort zone. But then, meanwhile, while all this is happening, there's this little old lady, Anna. She's a prophetess, and she's overhearing this prophecy happen. And let's look at uh, what it says about the text in her, starting in verse 36. It says, Anna, a prophet, was also there in the temple, and she was the daughter of Phanuel from the tribe of Asher, and she was very old. Her husband died when she had been married only seven years. Then she lived as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, but stayed there day and night, worshiping God with fasting and prayer. She came along just as Simeon was talking with Mary. So she's overhearing, and Joseph, and she began praising God. And she talked about the child to everyone who had been waiting expectantly for God to deliver Jerusalem. See, when I see this story, I see a woman of faithfulness and longing. See, Anna, she's, she's living in a curse of her own. She's a widow, right? And she's been a widow for a long time. I can't imagine losing your spouse only in seven years of marriage. I feel like that's probably like when you're starting to get into the stride of your marriage, maybe starting to consider kids and things like that. And here she is, a widow. And not to mention in this day and age, being a widow is completely disenfranchising. If you don't have a husband or a son, you have to rely on charity for your source of income. So here she is, and she's not bitter at all. What does she do? She spends all of her time in the temple praying and fasting to God. She spends all of her time in devotion to God. You know, I think behind a lot of successes in marriages and ministries, churches and, and husbands and wives' successes, I think behind a lot of those successes are faithful Annas who are in prayer and fasting, but they don't usually get to see a lot of limelight. But one thing I really love about Anna's testimony here is that I could see it going a completely different way. Anna, she has a terrible thing happen to her. She's a widow. And instead of being bitter, she puts all of her time into the temple. She could have said, I want nothing to do with you, God. You took away my husband from me. I want nothing to do with you. And instead, she's at the temple, spending all of her time there. And because of that, she gets to witness something amazing happen. She gets to see the Messiah who's going to lift the curse. It kind of makes me wonder how many times do we lose faithfulness? Maybe just a little too soon. 
Maybe 2016 kind of kicked you in the butt a little bit. Maybe you lost someone you love. Or you lost a job. Or you just had a lot of troubles in 2016. But I want you to look and be encouraged at Anna's prophecy here. Hold on. You never know what God has big in store for you when you're just faithful. So it says that next in the text, Mary and Joe, they head back home, head back to Nazareth. And I'm sure they have some great stories to tell everyone, right? They have a lot of tales to tell about what happened in Jerusalem. And it says they head home and uh, 12 years pass by. And each year they go back to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. And um, this time, 12 years later, they're heading back home from the Passover. They just got done partying in Jerusalem. And uh, it's about a day into their travel. And oh no, they can't find Jesus anywhere, the text says. They can't find him anywhere. And I'm thinking, how do you lose Jesus, right? How do you lose him? But apparently, it would have been easier than we think. They're not just traveling as a family. They're likely traveling as a town to ward off burglary. So, and also, Jesus is 12. So this is the age of what many call accountability. So he's kind of a man now. He can take care of himself. So they're worried. They're looking around for him. The text is they're looking for him for three days straight. They can't find Jesus for three days. And I bet they're really anxious at this point. I remember when I was in sixth grade, I lost my backpack for one day. And I had all of my schoolwork in it. And I was convinced that I was going to fail the sixth grade. I, I was crying to my dad. I said, I'm going to fail sixth grade. And I told him, I looked in his eyes and I said, I wish I was dead right now. I said that. I was a little bit dramatic. But all that is to say is that Mary and Joe, they just lost their son. I lost a backpack. So I bet they're pretty concerned. And here he is in the temple when they find him. And I bet they're so relieved. But at the same time, I bet they have that that parental anger in them that's like, you have some, you have some answers to give us, young man, you know? <laughs> kind of like when you're lost in the store, your parents call you to the front. You got some, you got ex- some explaining to do. And here, what does he say? He says, I was in my father's house. Don't you know that I have to be about my father's business? And they're confused. Since they're scratching their heads, they don't get it. And they're, they're questioning it. They're pondering, what does he mean by that? And you know, it makes me wonder, did Jesus, did they forget who Jesus is? Did they forget that Jesus is the Messiah? Or did Mary just make Jesus kind of ordinary, right? I wonder if, like it is for me now, looking back 12 years, when the Red Sox broke the curse, it's fond memories. It's pretty cool to think about. But I wonder if Mary looks back 12 years at Jesus' birth, and she thinks, you know, those were pretty cool times. It's just kind of fun to think about. I wonder if they went back to the temple and eventually Simeon and Anna... They pass away, and the hype around Jesus begins to die. 
And then before you know it, Jesus just gets ordinary. You know, I think the best of us, we can sometimes make Jesus a little bit ordinary in our lives. I know for me, this often happened when I went to summer camp and uh, we'd have these awesome spiritual highs during summer camp. We'd have devotions every night. We'd be talking about Jesus all the time. We'd have Bible games, kind of cheesy but fun. And um, then those hot summer nights, they begin to cool down. And then the school year starts back up again. Before you know it, you don't really talk about Jesus as much. You see him on Sunday once in a while. You read him in your Bible, but then you close the Bible and he stays in the book. Life gets ordinary with Jesus. You know, sometimes I think this time of year it can be easy to make Jesus ordinary. We just had Christmas. The hype was big. We're singing joy to the world. The Lord has come, right? I'm a great singer. And uh, we have our nativity scenes out, our advent calendars out. And then the new year comes. We stop singing. We pack away the nativity scenes. And if we're not careful, sometimes we pack up Jesus and he becomes ordinary. The hype fizzles out. So how do we stop? <laughs> That's my question. How do we stop making Jesus ordinary? I think in order to do this, we can learn a lot from Anna and Simeon's example here. Sometimes, I think as Christians, we need to look at their longing for Jesus to break the curse. And if we're not careful, we forget that the curse still exists in the world today. There's a lot of curse here in the world. The curse of sin and power grabbing and lust and selfishness. And if you don't believe me, just turn on the news for 10 minutes or go drive around in Nashville traffic for a week, <laughs> right? The curse still exists. And sometimes we forget, especially I forget, that there's a curse in a lot of the people I encounter on a daily basis and that they're longing for the Messiah to lift their curse, kind of like Anna and Simeon. You know, I believe that there are a lot of people right here in greater Nashville that have lips like Simeon, waiting and longing to praise, but they just don't know it yet because they haven't experienced the curse lifted for themselves. I think there's a lot of people in greater Nashville who are like Anna, and they want to tell everyone they know about Jesus. But they just haven't experienced the curse lifted for themselves. They haven't heard about Jesus. You know, one of my favorite scenes in any story is in the Chronicles of Narnia. It's the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. And if you're familiar with this story, uh, the white witch has bewitched Narnia, and it's all snow, never sunny, never warm. And she's riding her sleigh back to her lair, and she's got her little dwarf minion next to him, and she's whipping her horses, and all of a sudden, she hits her, her sleigh. She gets stuck, and she goes, what was that? Go check on that. So she sends her little minion out, 
And she says, what is it? And he's down here and he goes, it's mud. And she goes, what are you talking about mud? We don't have mud in Narnia. And she goes, he goes, Aslan is back. And if you're familiar with the story, Aslan is a metaphor for Jesus. And Aslan, when he comes back, he's, he's melting the snow and he's melting the ice and the flowers begin to blossom and bloom and the trees begin to grow leaves. And I think that's a perfect example for the world we are living in now. Christians, we are in the now, but not yet. We're still waiting for Jesus to restore the world, but we're kingdom workers, right? We're working in the meantime on bringing, king, on bringing Jesus to all the people we know, on thawing out cold hearts. You know, the tough thing about being a kingdom worker when you look at Anna and Simeon, they see Jesus as a little baby. But they probably pass away before they can see him become a man and fulfill the prophecy. Sometimes being a kingdom worker looks like sowing seeds that you never get to see grow. Some of us will probably never get to see Jesus come back in our lifetime. We'll never get to see him make all things new, like Revelation 21, in our lives. But that doesn't mean we don't be kingdom workers now. We're ushering in the kingdom now, before he comes. We're paving the way, right? So my New Year's dream, my New Year's goal for Aspen Grove is that we would be filled with longing, that we would be filled with longing for everyone in our families and in our communities, that they would come to know that Jesus is the light and salvation for everyone, not just for Christians, and that they can celebrate that the curse has been lifted and they don't have to long anymore because receiving after longing it's a beautiful thing let's pray heavenly father we come to you today and we thank you for a new year thank you for um, the seasons changing new beginnings you are constantly reminding us of that but as we start off the new year, I pray that, God, we would be filled with that longing, that we would be like Anna and Simeon, that we would be stirred up, and that we wouldn't look at our communities and the people living in our communities the same. I pray that we would go out and we would make a difference, and that we would be kingdom workers, and that we would thaw out those cold hearts around us, because they want to know, and they deserve, and they need to know that the curse is lifted, Jesus, and that you are here. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm just going to invite the band to come up now. And um, we're going to be going into a time of communion. And one thing in this text that really stuck out to me was that Simeon said that Jesus is going to reveal our hearts 
And as we go into a time of communion now, I encourage you to just look into your own heart now. Just look at your own longings. Maybe you're longing after something completely different than Jesus right now. Or maybe you realize, oh, my longing is in the right place. But one thing I love about communion is that it's a time where we can get our hearts right and we can reveal what's really in there. So let's align our hearts with Jesus now as we take communion.